They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to music. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to a special edition of Craig's Pop Life, a special Black Music Month edition of Craig's Pop Life. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I'm a Black gay music critic who's been in the game for more than 20 years. I've written for the Washington Post, Five, Entertainment Weekly, Spin, and many other publications, some of which don't even exist anymore. I'm the author of Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, forthcoming books on Janet Jackson, 90s R&B, and LaBelle's Breakthrough Nightbirds album. Now let me turn this music down, okay? So, and also put out a weekly newsletter, which you can find at craigspoplife.substack.com. Um... And so what I'm planning to do in these special Black History Month, Black History Month, Black Music Month episodes is just reflect on things that I've written in the past. What I'm going to do is read an article or review and then offer my commentary as I read it. So you may want to have read it in advance because I know I'm going to be talking a lot of ish in the process. So it might be hard to follow. I don't know. Um... And in many cases, I'll be rereading the piece for the first time. Like, I plan to... I'm just going backwards, um, like, starting with some of my oldest reviews that I can put my fingers on. Um, and just going from there. So, it, I, I, in many cases, I wouldn't... I haven't read the review in years. So I'm just going to be making... It's going to... I'm just going to keep it raw and real. That is my attention. Um, and most of my reviews can be found... Most of my work can be found at rnbeing.com. That's R-A-N-D... B-E-I-N-G dot com. Um, so, and you know, the whole point of it really is just to kind of talk about maybe how, how the music is pl- how the music has changed, rather, how the journalism game, sure enough, has changed, and just how I've personally changed in terms of, um, you know, what I would say now versus what I said then. You know, it's probably a lot more reckless. So uh, let's just jump in and see. The first review we're going to do is um, a review that I wrote on April 2nd, 1998 on Miss Aretha Franklin's A Rose is Still a Rose. Now, to give you a little background, um, which is appropriate since this is the first, you know, of the new season, what have you, um, of how I became a writer, a journalist, um, I came in the game through um, academia, uh, which is something I don't really recommend, but that's just my particular path. But anyway, after um, college, because I was an art history major, and you know what they tell you, what are you going to do with that? Well, when they tell you that, it really is true, because most jobs that they, most times when people say, what are you, what kind of job are you going to get with that major? When you get out of college, you really can't get a job with that major. So anyway, <laughs> you know, some, some common wisdom is false and turns out not to be true. Lots of shit people say, <laughs> you know, does turn out to be true. And that's not to say that you shouldn't, um, you know, follow your dreams and study what you want to study, especially if you're paying for it, and um, do what you want to do. But it's just to say that there is um, a less clear path afterwards, and you're going to have to make that shit up as you go along. And what did I do? I made that shit up as I went along. Okay? So, um, 
anyway, I could not get a job. And so I was working at, um, the one job I could get was at a gay bookstore. And, um, which was really, really, really great for me because not only it just kind of immersed me in gay culture. And at a time, you know, I was, I had come out early, you know, about four or five years earlier, but it just was like this kind of immersion. And DC had such a strong black gay community. So it's just, I was able to just meet and just, you know, um, have great conversations with so many people and then all the literature was there this is the time when the gay press was flowering and there were a lot of books on black gay men you know this is when um elon harris's invisible lives just first dropped so it was just like a lot going on and i was right in the heart of it and that was great but you know it really ain't pay all that much money so at some point you know a person needs to eat uh you know um I like to buy records. I remember one time having to scrounge money together to get the 12 inch of um, TLC's Ain't, Ain't Too Proud to Beg when that first dropped. And I was like, these times are just too tight. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> there's stuff I need to buy, whatever I need to, I need to up, up, step my, you know what up, you know. So I had applied to the American Studies program at the University of Maryland. That's also when I went to, where I went to undergrad. And so, you know, lo and behold, I was working one day and it was also one of those, you know, um, type moments where this was really a kind of um, point of like uh, black gay tension, I mean, black and white tension within the gay community over the music that was playing. Because when I was behind the deck, you know, and I could put my little cassette in, my little homemade cassette from home, you know, it was all about house music and whatever. And then if I was playing the radio, I was usually playing um, WKYS, so which was Donnie Simpson's old station. So like um, this particular day, I just remember it because this happened. Like Mary J. Blige's Reminisce was on, and you know how that opens with that long ah, <laughs> just that long acapella kind of part. And I just remember um, I was working with this white lady, and she was not feeling. She was just like. This music is giving me that. Can we listen to something else? And I was just like, whatever, child. So I was mad, you know, because like anytime something got too black in terms of the music, it was always like the manager would come down or somebody would and just change the music. One time somebody was like, Can you play some gay music? You know. So it was it was a thing. Because at this point, you know, even when you're talking about what I was playing, like house joints and everything like that white gay men didn't embrace that as their type of music or anything when we're talking about the um, late 80s, early 90s. That was very much like, you know, still a black gay underground type of thing. You know, um, the white children were still listening to their little Shep Pettibone mixes and stuff. And the more he incorporated house, the more they started to get into it. But, you know, this was still a time where there was some tension involved in that. Craig, why are you going all the way off on this? Because I'm saying I had to turn off my Mary J. Blige so I was in a mood, all right? So I, I was just like, you know, irritated. And this is back in them days when, you know, like I said, I'm from D.C. I came up a certain kind of way. And at a certain kind of age, if I was irritated, you were going to know that I was irritated. <laughs> I mean, like, I just didn't have a good you know, game of masking my irritation. So anyway, I just remember, you know, I answered the phone like, you know, Lambda Rising, may I help you? Just real, like, I'm over this entire situation. 
So I come to find out it was somebody from the American Studies program at the University of Maryland, and they were telling me that I was accepted in the program. And not only that, but that I was able to get a fellowship. So I was like, oh, well, that's cute. Thank you very much. You know, my mood improved a little bit. Um, and so, you know, but eventually I got the paperwork and all that kind of stuff and kind of did the math about how much I would get paid for the, my fellowship at American Studies and how much I was getting hourly at the bookstore. And, you know, the dollars just wasn't making sense. Like, I, <laughs> I was going to make more money sitting around going to school all day than I was standing on my feet. Um, you know, at this at the bookstore, and it turned out that I could still work weekends on the bookstore, so I still got my discount and whatever. So it was it was the ideal scenario. Okay, so that is basically um how I entered the game. I was a a, a grad student in American Studies, and you know, at the time, this was really when um, people were studying cultural studies and really starting to incorporate an understanding of pop culture as um, kind of a serious point of, as a serious um, subject to study. So whatever, what have you. But we're still talking a situation where it's mostly white, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, they were studying the Beatles and they were studying the Rolling Stones and they were studying what they were studying, but they weren't really studying what I was interested in. You know what I mean? Like what I wanted to do a paper on disco and stuff like I remember there was one little article Rich Dyer's in defense of disco that I really um, allowed me to make sense of how of understanding how disco culture was sort of a resistance to um, mainstream values and stuff like that so it's just, well, all I'm trying to say is that with even though the space of talking about popular culture was opening up within academia it wasn't opening all the way up as far enough to incorporate me, okay? So I was still on the outside looking in, and I still needed a way to um, be able to articulate my thoughts on the music that was very important to me. And like I said, this was in the early 90s, so you had just so much stuff going on, just like the hip-hop um, at this point was just so lyrical and... Um, you know, just really dense with meanings and everything. You know, this was time of like PE and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, you re it needed um, some critical understanding. And so I really had to turn to sources outside of the university in order to find a way to talk about these things in an um, intellectual and in a critical way. And the way I did that largely was by reading The Village Voice each week sitting up in the library, just reading the whole damn music section. Because at this time, you had such writers as Nelson George, Greg Tate, Joan Morgan, um, Dream Hampton, Daniel Smith. I mean, just the big hitters. And they, by reading them, that's how I learned how to critically understand my own music, understand black music. It wasn't from reading nobody inside the academy. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I remember when Trisha Rose's book, Black Noise, came out, and that was like such a big deal because that was like one book, you know, <laughs> within academic on an academic press that dealt with hip hop. But that was like it, you know. So, um, so after a while, like, I, you know, I, I 
got my master's degree and then I um you know I wasn't trying to switch up my money because the money was still it was still easy money so I say oh might as well get a PhD if, if the money gonna be the same I'm still gonna get the fellowship oh really cool okay yeah I'll stay so anyway um by the time, that time, I started to, when I'm really supposed, I'm not just writing, you know, papers for classes, but I'm really starting to think, like, what it, what am I going to do with this? What is my, um, what am I offering to this field? Then I really just had to stop and think, like, I'm reading, you know, great writers like Greg Tate and Dream Hampton and people like that, but then I'm kind of writing about that in an academic way and, like, you know, it, it just, there was a real disconnect between the words that were nurturing me as a um, thinker and what I was producing in order to be acceptable within this little-ass university context that I had put myself in. And that tension just got greater and greater and greater. And then, so my first way to kind of find a, um, a release valve with it, find an outlet, was to just try to write some articles for um, some journalistic publications. And fortunately enough, um, this was a time, again, you know, it was a time of like a lot of different papers and stuff. And DC had the Washington Blade, as which was like their kind of standard gay paper. But it also had Metro Weekly, which was run by Randy Shulman, that had more of an arts focus and it had kind of a more of a sort of irreverent point of view and everything like that. It was a little more fun. It was more connected to the club scene. And so I just, you know, sent him, I assume it was email times back then, you know, I, maybe I did, maybe I did actually put the stuff in a manila envelope, <laughs> go to the post office, get that thing stamped and mail it. So I don't remember. It was 1990-something. But whatever way it happened, he called me and he was like, yeah, you know, if you want to write something for me for free, that's fine, you know, if I like it, I'll, I'll run it, you know, it was kind of like that, very casual, and to be perfectly honest, that's what's cool with me, because that's where I was, you know, I was, you know, that knew that I was trying to figure out my critical voice and stuff like that, so... I didn't really expect somebody to pay me for what the shit I'm trying to figure out. I think a lot of times that um, a lot of people that are trying to get in the game kind of make that mistake where they kind of want, you know, a lot at the beginning. Well, like, I, like the money doesn't necessarily come at first. You know, do something else to get your money, but handle your cre creative um, works creatively you know have that be you know find people that are going to challenge you find outlets where you can express yourself creatively but like don't necessarily connect that to the money because then your art can kind of go left you know so anyway not necessarily but i'm just i'm just putting that out there you know if you can get paid paid for doing exactly what you wanted to artistically from day one more power to you and just go for it and everything like that i'm just saying that's not the way it was for me what's for me so, um, he liked my first couple of pieces, and I was like, well, can I write more? Can you know, we just had this thing, and then it turns out, you know, he kind of wanted me to write for him every week, which was fantastic, because um, it is very true that the more you write, especially the more you write in a journalistic way, and the more you write to um, communicate ideas to people, the better you get at it. And um, there's, you know, there's nothing more... 
inspirational than a deadline. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you have to kind of figure it the fuck out. And um, that was great for me. And I'm so grateful to, if it wasn't for Randy Shulman, like I would not have a career to this day because it was the clips that I did for Metro Weekly that allowed me to then send clips off to and again I still I do think this was me Xerox and shit and putting it in a manila folder, you know writing out little names and the, to the Washington Post and to all the other places so it really all starts with Metro Weekly and the first review that I'm going to read is a Metro Weekly review like I said it's of Aretha Franklin's A Rose is Still a Rose and this was a big deal at the time because it was kind of like um, well everything Aretha is a big deal but just it was kind of like her communicating with the hip hop generation. And what made this so interesting at this particular time is that most established kind of soul and R&B artists had not been able to make that connection with the hip-hop hip audience. You know, like, I love me some Diana Ross working overtime album. I love the album. I love each song. I love the videos. Shout out to Rosie Perez in the um, Working Overtime video. I like the remixes. Shout out to the Timmy Regisford remix of um, Working Over the House, Timmy Regisford House remix of the work of Working Overtime. You can get that confused when you search on YouTube and stuff like that. You can get that confused. You don't just want the Timmy Regisford Club mix. You want the Timmy Regisford House mix of Working Overtime, which is wonderful. And then, um, and shout out to the Chef Pettibone mixes of, of, um, Paradise, especially the dub, which includes a bit of her disco classic, The Boss. See how things connect? So, um, well, that's say I really love Diana Ross's um, Working Overtime. And she was even interviewed by um, Barbara Walters at the time that album came out. And she was, and Barbara was like, what type of music are you making? And Diana was like, oh, I don't know. The kids call it house. They call it hip hop. And she was really like roasted for saying that, for seeming very out of touch. So it wasn't a good look. But looking at that objectively and looking at that working overtime video and listening to the music, which was produced by Nile Rodgers, who always keeps an ear to the streets, um, it's a really wonderful project, and I think she really did it well. It was just this time in the culture where the 80s had been so dominated by crossover acts where sort of blackness was toned down and the connection to an actual black community, an artist's connection to an actual black community was kind of um, obscured and so that they could get the white kids dancing to this shit. Um, and also, so you had that going on in the pop arena, but in the R&B arena, you had... Just the quiet storm. Now, I, I mean, you know, I grew up in the quiet storm. Shout out to Melvin Lindsay. Shout out to WHUR. Melvin Lindsay was a black gay man. If you listen to those early, like if somebody had playlists, if you listen to those early songs that he really played, not necessarily the stuff that became quiet storm staples nationwide, but just the shit that he would play speaks so much to a black gay man's sort of um, trying to figure out the world. Like when he would play shit like... The original Wiz versions of like Be a Lion, you know, and um, Soon as I Get Home, thinking about that in a gay context in the 80s, that shit is deep. So, I, all I'd say, so I will never bad talk Quiet Storm, but by the mid, by the mid, late 80s, everything was a Quiet Storm. Like everything was mid tempo. You could not hear a record, you could barely snap your fingers. You know that, um, Freddie Jackson, um, what's that Freddie Jackson song, Rock Tonight or Jam Tonight? That's like the fastest shit you got. I'm rock to 
Like, that was the fastest shit you were going to hear all damn day on R&B radio. And then R&B radio was very anti-hip-hop. So they would even advertise, like, no rap, no rap all day. You know, so for the, like, me, for, like, the younger generation to listen to hip-hop, we're like, wait a minute, you know? Ain't this supposed to be black radio? Ain't we supposed to, you know, because it was a time, the early 80s and the 70s, like, even sociologists would remark on the fact that it, within the black community, everybody was listening to the, to the same music, that there were no divisions in terms of um, age, you know, that you had that were so noticeable, like when the when the white parents were listening to Lawrence Welk and what have you, and then the white kids were listening to R Rolling Stone. You didn't used to have that in the black community, but by, by, by the late 80s, you started to have that. So, you know, people were really feeling a different type of way. So I think because of that, it really became important for singers to ha that were um, kind of working within that hip-hop context to have an actual connection to the hip-hop community. So for somebody like Diana Ross, it wasn't as easy as, say, you know, when she did disco records, she was just at the disco and everything was cool. It didn't really matter. You weren't really thinking about... Well, you saw pictures of her at Studio 54 and stuff, but you weren't really thinking, is Diana really about that disco life? Like, is she really out there like that? You, I mean, it just didn't matter. It's just like the record was a disco record. You just took it... Um, you know, you just took it as it is that it was a disco record. But once hip-hop came in, it was really about like, nah, we don't need Diana to do hip-hop. We need hip-hop people to do hip-hop. So there was a real line drawn in terms of, um, especially for younger black audiences, in, in terms of wanting some real authenticity. That's why we saw the rise of like Mary J. Blige and SWV and people like that. And we didn't see so much, and, and we had, our legacy artists didn't do that well in that era because um, younger audiences just didn't want that. So we get to, be, so, okay, so all that's happened by the 1998, by the mid-90s, kind of hip-hop soul is an established thing. It's no longer hungering for legitimacy and everything like that. People are now taking Mary J. Blige as a serious artist. A lot of people don't remember. People very much dismiss Mary as a singer, as an artist, and everything early in her career. You know, they were not calling her the heir apparent to Aretha or anything like that very early on. I mean, she was very much dismissed. So, but by the late 90s, you know, hip-hop soul, R&B, selling stuff, you know, people were getting a little older and everything like that. So the context had changed a lot about who's hip-hop and who's not hip-hop. And so it was kind of like, will Aretha Franklin be accepted doing, um, you know, doing hip-hop, more hip-hop oriented, uh, hip-hop oriented R&B and working with today's producers and everything like that. That was kind of the, the question, which was by no means, um, a sure thing. So here, I'm, I'm just, like I said, I'm going to read the review. I'm going to make my colorful, perhaps, commentary as I read. And then, um, and then, you know, we'll talk afterwards. Well, I guess we're talking the whole way through, but you get my point. Okay. Oh, my column was called, I guess the section of Metro Weekly that it was in was called Out on the Town. Like I said, they were very much about that nightlife and everything like that. That's why I like them. And, um, but my column was called Musical Notations by Craig Seymour. So, get that right. 
Um, okay. I know that you're I know that you're tired of hearing the same song sings the legendary Aretha Franklin on her new CD, A Rose is Still a Rose. And that's just and it's just one of the many sentiments that she nails on her latest efforts. Yes, we are sick of hearing Aretha sing the same old songs. As if we really needed Respect 97 from the equally unnecessary Blues Brothers 2000. In recent years, the Queen of Soul has become the American cliché of a fading star. Bloated, gaudily dressed, and seeming to live in an alternative universe where every bad career move seems like a good one. On Rose, however, Aretha is graciously rescued from this faith. From this fate, rather, not faith. Can never, can never move her from her faith. Okay. On Rose, however, Aretha is graciously rescued from this fate by R&B's new teen titans. Team leader, Puff Daddy, his sidekick, Jermaine Dupree, the producer behind Usher's success. Dallas Austin, the brooding genius behind TLC and Madonna's Secret. And the Fuji's resident wonder girl, Lauren Hill, who contributes the fiery feminist title cut. The results range from the inspired, and then I put in parentheses, In the Morning, which I still love that song. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And I'll dip, which I still think is a little jam. Um, to Insipid, sometimes even within the same song. The two verses on Love Pangs contain some of the Queen's best singing ever, but the chorus is so bland that it's best sped through. As on her classic recordings, the highlight of Rose is simply hearing the Queen's once-in-a-lifetime voice. It's been decades since Aretha's voice has sounded as heavenly, which is the much-publicized result of quitting smoking. Hearing her newly restored range should send nicotine queens like Shaka Khan scrambling for a patch. The youth-oriented Rose proves that unlike some haggard Motown stars of yore, Aretha has the artistic vitality needed to stay relevant. As with her triumphant operatic performance from this year's Grammys, Aretha shows that it's better to try and attempt something different than to accept that your best days are behind you. This is a handy lesson for both her boomers and her much sought after youth audience. All right, so that was my Aretha day. I mean, my thing, just read it back to it now. Like I said, I still love In the Morning. I still really like that album. Um, I see what I was trying to do with call, saying, calling the producers the Teen Titans and everything like that. But um, probably retrospect, I think I probably wouldn't do that. I think that um, sort of diminutizes um, the talents of these figures that have really done it, you know, had their own labels, had string of hits at this point. I think I probably should have said the Super Friends or something like that, at least, you know, um, and I definitely shouldn't have called Jermaine Dupree Puff Daddy's sidekick, because one of the things that I think is so great and really un, um, really not discussed all that much is the kind of reciprocal relationship they had throughout the, um, especially the early part of the 90s, whereas like often on a um, bad boy song, like let's say Totals Can't You See, or almost any of the Totals early singles, or even like Big Papa, you would have a Jermaine Dupri mix. So I just thought that was a wonderful kind of communication between um, the East Coast and down South and everything like that. So I really appreciate their relation, their creative relationship. So I, I wouldn't put it down like that. Um, let's see what else. The other thing that I will say, and I've noticed this a lot about my work. Well, no, I can't say that really that I've noticed this a lot about my work. I can say that a lot of people have 
put it in front of my face so that I've been forced to notice this about my work because people have brought it up to me. But I'm just like, you know, I'm just like sitting mad like bullets all over the place when I'm just spraying mad bullets like all over the place when I write some of my reviews where I'm like, a lot of people are taking strays and I didn't really intend it like that at the time per se, I don't think. But reading now, it's like, well, damn, why did I need to say that about that person? Um... You know, so when I say, you know, the youth-oriented rose proves that unlike some haggard Motown stars of yore, Aretha has an artistic vitality needed to stay relevant. Like, who the fuck am I talking about? I mean, that's something I think you really need to realize, like, especially for, like, younger writers and stuff like that. You don't want to be subliminal in your reviews. You don't want to um, be vague. Like, if you have a point to make, then make the point. I don't even remember who I was talking about. If I was talking about somebody specific. I don't know. Did Smokey Robinson just drop something whack? Who knows? I don't know because I didn't name names because I didn't say. It was just almost like a convenient thing to throw out there. So I think that's something I definitely um, would do over. And that's something I would definitely recommend to writers. It's just like say exactly what you mean. Don't just throw something out there um, as kind of like a straw man argument. Um, the other thing that I did a lot, um, and I think, you know, I take full responsibility for it, is that when I wrote about, um, and I'm sure I did the same thing with male artists too, but I think I probably would put less emphasis on the person's body. So like when I called her bloated, that doesn't really, what you know, have anything to do with anything um gaudily dressed i don't know i just think that uh, um we've come to a certain place where we're kind of interrogating some of those um notions a little bit and so to me that's one of the things that's very dated and then i don't know why i was coming for shaka like that because everybody who knows me has been listening no shaka is my number one undisputed fave of faves i think i was really trying to get her to stop smoking because like, like around this time it must have been around when did waiting to exhale come out i'm on my computer y'all hold on let's see waiting to 1995 okay so and this review came out in 1998 now sometime between 1995 and 1998 i went to see shaka khan at the carter baron amphitheater everybody in dc know what the carter, carter baron amphitheater is it's outdoors and, and everything what have you um but also, like with many amphitheaters, you can see everything. There really is no like dark backstage where you can't see something. So it was another great Shaka Khan concert. You know, I mean, a Shaka Khan concert is always going to be great for me because I'm always just interested in like what she's going to sing, how she's going to phrase, ain't nobody this time, how she's going to, you know, she just all, they're just things that, I mean, she's it's just interesting. So I'm always interested. This particular time, she was singing My Funny Valentine, which is like, probably one of my least favorite of her popularized songs. I don't I don't like the arrangement. I don't like anything about it. It's too subdued. I don't like Babyface's production. Um, the lyrics are weird anyway. Like, it's cool if I listen to Sarah Vaughn singing it, because it's like, that's what's back in the day. But like, if you tell me my looks are laughable, you just need to fucking leave. <laughs> and take your Valentine with you. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just think it's weird in the 90s hearing that song and like I said I kind of hate that smooth jazz arrangement but it was like one of her first kind of I don't know if it was a big radio hit but it definitely got 
a lot of um, a big audience just because a lot of people bought that album, so they were listening to that album. So a lot of people's kind of renewed connection to Shaka was through this song. So whatever. So Shaka's on stage. She's doing my funny Valentine. Blah blah blah. That which I hate. Um, so then she lets her band, you know, have a little solo because that's the dad song. So that's the song that you would have a band do a solo. Don't you know, she just stepped a few feet off stage. Because like I said, it's an amphitheater. There is no real backstage. You can see shit. You know, it's, it's bright daylight. It's like the summertime, you know. And she says, takes out a cigarette, lights a cigarette up, smokes the entire cigarette. And she wasn't rushing. She was smoking the entire cigarette. You know, in plain ass view in the outdoors, while each band member went through their um, you know, little solo part, and then when it, they was like winding up, because you could tell like they had gone through all the instruments. You know, everybody had done solo. She put flicked that cigarette on the ground, put it out with her boot, and came right on stage like, "Don't came to no hear from me," <laughs> without missing a note, without sound any different or anything like that. It, it was an incredible moment. Um, but nevertheless, I was concerned with her. You know, I didn't want her to damage her voice. So I think that was actually out of um, genuine concern. So... That's pretty much all I have to say about this particular review. Um, and all meaning, I think we're over, what, um, 30 minutes now. So, <laughs> for one little review. But anyway, um, I'm going to keep this up and just um, post about former reviews. If there's a particular review that you want me to, um, or a particular article that you want me to reflect upon, please let me know. You know where to get hit at, hit me, um, like at Twitter, um, at Craig's Pop Life, or um, whatever the many ways that you can hit me up. And thank you very much for listening. So, um, like I end all the podcasts, I want you to be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, Be your damn self. <laughs> all right, y'all. Thanks for listening. Bye.